The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. On February 27, 1992, a string of five armed robberies occurred in Gary, Indiana leaving one man shot dead in front of his wife and three young daughters. All the victims described the assailant as a black man around 5'6 with a kangle hat, red bandana, black leather jacket, and some sort of scarring on his face. Instead of compiling a photo array of men fitting that description, investigators included the photo of Timmy Donald, a man who was six feet tall with no facial scarring and, according to at least one victim, was the suggested choice of investigators. In fact, a search warrant had already been obtained for Timmy's home before he had been misidentified. Three of the robbery victims, including one former Gary police officer, were separately shown the photo array and did not identify Timmy, but the other two viewed the array together. A mixture of police and peer pressure produced two misidentifications. During the live lineup, according to one victim, when she said that Timmy was bigger than the armed robber, she was assured that they had the right guy. Even though it was proven that Timmy was at work at the exact time that the victim had spotted the actual attacker on the street and tried to report it, tunnel vision had already set in, and that report was hidden from the defense. Despite no physical or forensic evidence, as well as a solid alibi and the protests of all the other victims, the misidentifications were enough to send Timmy Donald away for a 60-year sentence. This is Wrongful Conviction. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. Today's case is pretty much mind-blowing. It was an insane crime spree. But how they ended up convicting a man named Tim Donald and sentencing him to 60 years to life in prison on some of the shakiest eyewitness testimony I've ever heard, ignoring and covering up exculpatory evidence. And that's just the beginning. We're talking about an Indiana case that occurred in the early 90s in a time when police corruption, it would be comical if it wasn't so sinister. And we have the man himself 
here today with us. So without further ado, Tim Donald, welcome to Wrongful Conviction. Thank you for having me. And, you know, I always say I'm sorry you're here because of the reason why you're here, but I'm very grateful and honored to have you here on the show with us. And of course, with you today is my friend and someone who a lot of us call a hero in this movement. She's a professor of criminal justice who serves as the executive director of the Center for Justice and Post-Exoneration Assistance at Purdue University Northwest. Dr. Nikki Jackson, welcome to Wrongful Conviction. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me. So, Tim, it's been 30 years since this happened, but it must seem like yesterday in some ways to you. Let's go back in time to before this insanity, when you were just a young man with hopes and dreams like anybody else. What was your life like growing up in Indiana back in the in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s? I had four sisters, mother, stepdad. During grade school, middle school, and high school, I enjoyed playing sports, baseball, basketball, and just hanging around my family and friends. Were you a good player, good athlete? Pretty good. <laughs> he says that. He, I hear that underneath that tone, it sounds like he was probably really good. It yeah, was pretty good. Some humility. Um, I had dreams of playing center field for the Chicago Cubs. So you were good. Yeah, yeah. let's not. Listen, I had dreams of being a pro ball player, too, but I also <laughs> I knew that every, those dreams were. Yeah, probably every young man had those dreams. Yeah, yeah, but mine, there was no connection between those dreams and reality. <laughs> so you grew up, and w- did you have any run-ins with the law before this insane series of events? Yeah, in uh, 1989, we wanted to borrow my friend's uncle car to go to the beach. And I know the neck of the steering column was missing. That's usually associated with the car being stolen. So uh, I asked his uncle what was going on with that. He said he, said he lost the key and he was in the process of getting that ignition fixed. Hmm. So we got stopped by the police and he noticed the ignition and automatically he thought the car was stolen. So we was arrested. His uncle eventually came to the police station, brought the proper paperwork showing ownership of the car. And I was released and was not charged with a crime. Good thing he had that. When I got arrested for the alleged car theft, I was fingerprinted. And that's how my pictures got in the Gary Police Department. And I think that's an important point to touch on because I think it's why a lot of young men like yourselves who come from areas where over-policing is occurring end up in the system through no fault of your own in this case. So this crime, this is a crazy scenario. I'm talking about February 27, 1992 in Glen Park, which was a neighborhood in Gary, Indiana. There were five armed robberies all within one hour of each other. And the fourth robbery resulted in the death. A man named Bernard Jimenez was arriving home with his wife, Kimberly Belinsky, and their three little daughters. A man had a hand gun and he grabbed the little girl, the, the biggest one, the seven-year-old, and demanded money. And Miss Belinsky said that her husband put the cash from his wallet, which was less than $20, on the ground, told the robber to go into the house and take whatever he wanted. The robber picked up the money but was angry when he saw there was so little of it, threw it down on the ground, yelled out, you don't value your family. And then he pointed his gun at the one-year-old's face. I mean, this is a sick, sick guy. Then the victim, Mr. Jimenez, threw a small wooden picnic table at the assailant. There was a struggle, and the struggle ended with the robber fatally shooting this young father. 
and fleeing. Five minutes after Mr. Jimenez was murdered, the perpetrator then gets to another victim, robs her and her daughter, and she is a former Gary police officer. And I think wow. that's really important as well. Right. And since this is a case of misidentification, curiously, this former Gary police officer never identified you. And one would think that her judgment might hold more weight with the local police. I mean, she's a cop after all, but it did not. And all of the robbery victims, as well as Mr. Jimenez's wife, Kimberly Belinsky, described the assailant in a similar way, right? Black male, about 5'6", black leather jacket, a kangol hat with a red bandana, really sleepy eyes. And they all said that he had really bad skin, like maybe acne scarring or something like that. So let's go to the first most obvious thing. Tim, how tall are you? I'm six feet. So the victims described the perpetrator who was 5'6 or 5'7. Exactly. I mean, did you suddenly grow after you went to prison? Were you maybe 5'6, 5'7 back then? I must have grew. You had an excellent makeup artist. <laughs> yeah, you didn't have anything wrong with your skin either, as all the victims had described the assailant, right? It's a mystery as to how you could have even been considered a potential suspect. What, did your skin, like, magically heal itself overnight or magically get terrible? Over I mean, it's, it's all so, it's monstrously ridiculous. Yet, inexplicably, the investigation still was sent in your direction. We still don't know, maybe we'll never know what the motivation was, but before they had even done this sort of shady identification procedure, Timmy was arrested on some kind of traffic violation just four days after this crime. I was arrested uh, March 2nd. They came to his home with this arrest warrant for failure to... To yield a stop sign. Yeah, that sounds fishy. But at this point, you're probably still just thinking, okay, I'll go take care of this and be on my way. No, I knew something was wrong when they uh, came to the house. It was like they was picking up the president for the White House with mm -hmm. all the cars and things of this nature. So I knew it was something more than a traffic. I didn't know it was to this degree. Had you heard about this crime spree? I mean, was it known in the area? I think my sister had read about it in a, a newspaper. So after he was taken to the police station under this warrant for these, you know, failure to appear in court, he was placed in a photo lineup. So Mr. Donald's picture was put in the six pack in that photo lineup based on that 1989 arrest, okay? So it was tossed in. Now, three of the victims viewed the lineup separately, but that wasn't the case with these other two, Kimberly Belinsky and Rhonda Williams. From my understanding, these two women were placed in the same room and identified Mr. Donald, whereas all the other victims did not identify him. They all had said, this is not the man. What happened was these two women are in this room. It's One's a Caucasian, one's African-American. The Caucasian female says, I'm not sure. At some point in the game, she changes her story and says, yes, it's him. Yes, it's him. Later, and we can talk about this because I think this is so important to Timmy's case, is the recantation made by Rhonda Williams. When Rhonda says she was basically coerced to pick Mr. Donald out of that photo lineup, Kimberly Belinsky says, no, we got the right guy. 
So you have this element of cross-racial identification, which study after study has proven to be actually less accurate than guessing. And yes, you heard that right. It's less accurate than guessing, especially in cases where someone witnesses a violent crime up close. So at first, Kimberly was not sure. Then she eventually comes around to that ID and all the other people in the room lean on Rhonda. And what's really important to note is that all of the victims, every victim had reported that the assailant had really bad skin, had a different build than Mr. Donald had. The man they described could not have been Mr. Donald. Yet in the photo lineup, these two women together picked out Mr. Donald. After the victims were shown the photo lineup, then there was a physical lineup. The lineup was like, it was suggestive. Everybody supposed to resemble one another. Then none of the uh, guys uh, resemble me. I was like the, tall, the tallest one in the lineup. And the same two victims identified Mr. Donald. Right. Well, we know that photo lineups can be done in a very suggestive manner, and they often are. And then once the victim or even eyewitness sees that photo in the photo lineup and identifies it, now their mind starts to lock in on that image. And then they go to the live lineup and you have a person who doesn't resemble the actual perpetrator, but resembles the person that they picked out when they were being suggestively shown the photos in the six pack. And of course, you go, oh, that's, yeah, because you're already, that's the way our mind works. The next day, they went and conducted a search of his home. The Kangle hat and a red bandana were never discovered. And none of the victims' belongings wasn't found in my home either. They found absolutely no evidence uh, that linked Mr. Donald to any of these robberies or the murder of Mr. Jimenez. The thing that struck me is odd. They had the affidavit for a search warrant signed by the judge an hour before the lineup was even conducted. But you need probable cause to get the search warrant. Right. And they didn't have that. They had made their minds up and they were going to make the evidence fit the narrative that they wanted instead of looking at the evidence and then analyzing it for what it was. It's very shocking to even know that this even got to trial. I mean, there was zero evidence, zero. Yet you were charged with first-degree murder and two counts of armed robbery. The trial took place in Lake County Circuit Court in June of 92. Now, your older sister, Sheila, and her partner, Dan Hopkins, both testified that during the evening of the crimes, you were car shopping with them in a place called Merrillville and Crown Point, Indiana. And the car salesman testified, right? So someone could say, well, the relatives, people say whatever they say about that. But the car salesman testified that the three of you were at their dealerships at the same time of day as the crimes occurred. But for some reason, the dealership employees didn't verify that they were on the exact same day as the crime. What I don't understand. What what was that all about? That keep being said, but my sister brought proof a business card that was dated and had car prices on it the same day that these crimes was committed. So I don't know why it was put out there like when we visit the car dealership, it went on the same day of the uh, crimes. And the cameras in the auto dealership, the footage had been erased. So that's one of the issues. My trial attorney didn't get there in time enough and they had erased tapes. And since you didn't have the money to bond out, you were not able to develop the alibi evidence that your lawyer didn't seem to have the time or inclination, let's call it what it is, to develop. Now, 
Any absence of physical or forensic evidence was explained away just as your alibi evidence was as well. And even though three of the five victims never identified you, they still had Kimberly Belinsky adamantly supporting her ID while Rhonda Williams was convinced to go through with hers at trial. Meanwhile, any of Rhonda's reservations at the live lineup and the fact that she had reported seeing the attacker, proven to not be you, in the street in the days following the robberies, all of that critical information was hidden from your defense team. And so the jury found you guilty and you were sentenced to 60 years. After the verdict was read, I just looked back towards my family because they were sitting directly in back of me. And one of my sisters was pregnant at the time. She just collapsed. I already know that I had got felt guilty. And my mind, my main concern was the safety and welfare of my sister at the time. The Pacers Foundation is a proud supporter of this episode of Wrongful Conviction and of the Last Mile organization, which provides business and tech training to help incarcerated individuals successfully and permanently re-enter the workforce. The Pacers Foundation is committed to improving the lives of Hoosiers across Indiana, supporting organizations that are dedicated primarily to helping young people and students. For more information on the work of the Pacers Foundation or the Last Mile program, visit PacersFoundation.org or TheLastMile.org. First time I went to a rec yard and I looked at that 40 foot wall and you can't see nothing. Only thing that you can see is the sky. And that's what really stuck in my head. Of course, in prison, you experience different type of emotions. You know, you go through a bout of depression. I remember one time I was having a hard time sleeping and I remember this show I was watching. I forgot the name on the show. It was a guy on death row in Texas. He wrote a letter to the Innocent Project, and eventually they helped him uh, get off a of death row and uh, released from uh, prison. And at that moment, I just sat down there and I wrote a summary of my case. Uh, I got a, a directory of all the uh, Innocent Projects in the United States, and I got a copy of the letter. I just sent them out to all the Innocent Projects. Amazingly, things started to turn around. It was not that long after you went to prison, right, that it was discovered that not long after the crime and before you had been arrested, one of the victims, a victim named Williams, had called the police and reported that she saw the man who robbed her on the street. So Williams had been living with the fact that she felt like she had, you know, picked out the wrong man. And we now know that she had called the police, I believe three days after she had been robbed. She said, I see the man. I think this is him who actually robbed me. So the police went to her home. They spoke with her. And then they went to Mr. Donald's workplace. They checked out his time card. They spoke to his supervisor. And they found that there was no way that Mr. Donald could have been the man in front of her home when he was at work. In fact, he had lunch with his supervisor at the time that she had phoned the police. So Rhonda Williams, prior to your formal charges, had spotted the actual assailant on the street and reported it. And the police looked into it. And it turned out that the person that she saw could not have been you. 
because you had been at work, provably so, at the time that she had seen the attacker. I'm just pausing for a second (laughs) for emphasis. That seems like it should have mattered to the police. That's right. And yet nobody knows about this. The detectives did not inform anybody. This didn't come out till after he'd been incarcerated for many, many years. That was just the first time that they would tell evidence on my case. If the attorney had had this information, this case would have pretty much been a done deal. That information, as I understand it, became the basis for a post-conviction motion to vacate Tim's conviction. But the motion, as well as the subsequent appeals, were denied. They said the information had merit, but it was a time restraint on it, and that's why that got denied. During that time, I was transitioning to another attorney. My trial attorney, he was running for the uh, mayor of Gary, so... At this time, I didn't have an attorney, and I guess the, the time frame that it posted been filed, it had overlapsed. Mm. I mean, these technicalities make me crazy. I think most people would agree that justice is more important than technical details and furthermore, finality, which seems to be the opposite of the way our system functions. So now we fast forward to 2006, when... The Medill Innocence Project at Northwestern University's Medill School of Journalism and later the Chicago Innocence Center began reinvestigating your case, Tim. And they found evidence that showed that an 18-year-old street gang member, a guy named Lavelle Thompson, who had facial acne and was about the right height, he had been murdered shortly after the robberies and the murder of Mr. Jimenez. Now, In 2009, so another three years go by, Williams provided a sworn statement saying that at the time she viewed the photographic lineup, she was with Belinsky. So Williams said she pointed to your photo and Belinsky began to weep. However, a police officer noted in a report that Belinsky was not completely sure of her identification. Williams also said in the statement that when she viewed the live lineup, she told the detective that, Timmy, that you were bigger and taller than the robber, right? Just like we keep been saying this whole time. And as you had been saying probably the whole time. However, the detective assured her that you were in fact the guy and that you had been arrested across the street from Williams' home. Now, she said the detective, quote unquote, convinced me that I had picked the right guy, end quote. Williams also said she never told prosecutors about her reservations or the detective statement successfully coercing her. And she said that she remained convinced that the man that she saw shortly after the robbery was the gunman who robbed her, which, again, would have mean that it could not possibly have been you. And everybody knew that because they knew that you had been at work at that time. That was beyond any doubt. But she testified to her doubts and to the police detective's effort to persuade her during a sworn deposition that she gave in 2013 as part of the post-conviction proceeding to vacate your conviction. So now things are really gathering momentum. About this time, that's when the notes was discovered. That Rhonda and my trial prosecutor had a meeting. This was before trial, way back in 92. Rhonda had told the then prosecutor that was prosecuting my case that she wasn't 100% certain that I was the individual. She said I was taller. She said my shoulders was wider and that she wasn't sure. So he actually knew about these notes and he got her on stand knowing that she testified to something that she ain't uh, sure about. 
So these notes stay hidden in this prosecutor file for over 20 years before they was discovered. That's the second Brady violation. I, I don't have any words for that, right? Nikki, what can you say about this well, type of behavior? What can you say? Well, it's unacceptable. And I think people need to be held accountable. If prosecutors and or police didn't do what they should be doing, they should be held accountable. I mean, at the end of the day, these folks are responsible for stealing this man's life. And if you and I stole somebody's life, we would be held accountable. It's hard to think of another profession where you have no accountability, right? Because they have this immunity, they're able to to get away with these things. But I think once we start holding criminal justice actors responsible, we will start to see change for the better. I thank God that he didn't put the notes through the shredder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's a miracle sure. right there. And And that brings us to 2016. 24 years and we end up on January 25th, 2016, in the Lake County Circuit Court, right, where the judge vacated your convictions and granted a new trial. Now, the judge said that the prosecution contended that the same man had committed both crimes and had argued that the identifications were positive and without any reservations. So the judge ruled that the prosecution's failure to disclose Ms. Williams' reservations about her identification, as well as the detective's effort to persuade her, successfully as it turned out, to identify you, rendered your trial unconstitutional, constitutionally unfair, as he called it. And so on January 27, two days later, the Lake County State's attorney dismissed the charges and you were released. You went in as a 23-year-old kid, really. Let's say so you're more of a kid at 23 than a man. Now you're a 47-year-old man. And so we talked about that terrible moment when you were convicted of a crime you had nothing to do with. What about this moment? I want to take you back a little bit, Jason. Like uh, a week prior to uh, me finding out that uh, the charges was getting dismissed, uh, my mother had came to visit me, and she told me uh, it was like a $360, I can't even remember the exact number, Powerball. And she said she was going to play it. So the following Monday, I loosely called my mother and my auntie. And my mother told me we won. So I'm thinking when she said we won, I'm thinking she's talking about the Powerball. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> I was elated to hear the true family came out. What about the Powerball? They didn't, they didn't win that one? Yeah, she didn't win the Powerball. <laughs> oh, she probably was more excited for this win than <laughs> yeah, that Powerball. I guarantee you she was. <laughs> she would have gave that Powerball ticket, yeah. the winning ticket to get her son home. There's no question yeah. about it. So, and, and keep in mind, Jason, that while he had been exonerated in January of 2016, we all know he's innocent. The prosecutor has even stated that he is innocent. Listen, there is no statute of limitations for for homicide. So the state at any time can still come back and bring charges against Mr. Donald. And I don't think people really understand how this haunts Mr. Donald today, tomorrow. I mean, this, you know, they can come back even with no evidence, nothing here in Indiana. And that's really problematic. Yeah, I mean, they can come back uh, everywhere that I know of, um, yeah. and they can retry you. Normally, they won't, but sometimes they try to extract a plea uh, just in order for you to avoid the retrial. And after everything you'd already been through, you know, who knows how somebody's going to react to that. Um, they offered me a plea bargain in 2013. 
the prosecutor had reached out to his attorney. They had offered him an Alfred plea to get out, and he refused because, Timmy, what you shared with me was that you would not agree to something that you did not do and that they called your mama a liar. And for those reasons, he chose not to accept that Alfred plea or he would have been out of prison in 2013. They called my sister a liar, my brother-in-law a liar, and I just couldn't accept taking a plea bargain. I know I didn't have nothing to do with it. So the prosecutor clearly knew in advance three years earlier that they didn't have anything, right? They they knew. They knew. In fact, I called the prosecutor after I met Mr. Donald and I said, hey, is this guy really innocent? And he said, he's 100% innocent. We locked up the wrong guy. I mean, I will never forget that phone call. Yeah, but what does it say? as well about this system and the people in it that they come to you i'm 99 sure they knew you were innocent and they're trying to they're trying to screw you again by getting mm-hmm. you to sign away literally sign your life away mm-hmm. in order to go home i haven't figured out how people sleep at night jason i'm not gonna lie to you i i really don't know how People can sleep at night knowing that an innocent person is sitting in prison and they have the power and the authority to help release that individual. It, it's unbelievable. And instead they go the exact opposite way and try That's to right. make the situation worse, try to double down. Because it's not enough that we kept this innocent man in prison for half of his life. Right. Right. Now exactly. we're going to make sure that he can't ever get justice by making exactly. him sign a piece of paper that we know is false. I mean, I don't know how they sleep at night either. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. I think you're a great example for everyone of somebody who's been to hell and back and come out, you know, wanting to make a difference, making a difference in the lives of others, 
not sitting around. I mean, listen, if you were in the, in the bar, drunk in the corner every day, all day, nobody could judge you because of what you went through. But instead, you're working hard with Dr. Jackson, educating people, helping other exonerees, doing all kinds of incredible stuff. I think it's important to know what happened with Timmy's life, like after, like literally when he got out. So I equate leaving prison, coming back into society, to being dropped in a foreign country and you don't know the languages out of the customs. I went to stay with my uh, sister, the same sister that I was with, a fiance is, they now married, they offer me a room. Wait, the same sister and fiance that were your alibi witnesses? Yes. Mm-hmm. They offered me a place to stay and I gladly accepted. When I saw this picture of Mr. Donald in a newspaper, I knew I had to meet him. My background is domestic violence. But when I met Mr. Donald, what I observed was another victim, but a victim of a system. And when he got out of prison, you know, there were a lot of struggles and challenges, right? Dental health issues, medical health, economic strife. I mean, he didn't have a job, a driver's license, a resume. You know, how do you craft a resume when there's 24 years missing? So think about how hard that is. And so when we met and he shared those struggles, there was no question that things needed to change for exonerees here in Indiana. When you're being released, people that actually committed a crime, they have more resources and people that's been wrongly convicted. And I don't got a problem with that. They need, because recidivism rate is so high, but they should still accommodate wrongful convicted individual also. Through Timmy, I have learned so much about the flaws in the system and all of the re-entry struggles. So I said to Timmy, we've got to fix it. We got to fix it. We've got to address these issues. And that's what we've been doing. One of the first things that I promised Timmy was that we would get a compensation statute in the state of Indiana. I fought very hard. And uh, two years later, we, we have a compensation statute, which is still a problem. Our exonerees have to choose between litigation or compensation the way it currently stands. And that's problematic because again, we're re-victimizing them. We're saying you can't pursue litigation if you want to receive the compensation. Again, we're holding them hostage. So you and I crossed paths during that fight to get the compensation bill passed. And like you mentioned, this bill has its problems, but it's still a first victory in the longer battle for a just system. And you and I go into depth on how you got this done in our interview on my other podcast, Righteous Convictions, where I encourage our listeners, please go check this out. We'll we'll have it linked in the bio to make it easy for you. Now, you sat on two prison advisory boards, and you were able to use that position knowing a number of lawmakers, and you were able to rally support for this bill as flawed as it is. So that is something you continue to work on from an organization that you founded in Timmy's name which is beautiful, actually, back in 2020, the Willie T. Donald Exoneration Advisory Coalition. So what have you guys been up to? And, you know, we need some help for the folks here in Indiana in terms of post-exoneration assistance. We have an amazing board of directors. We are very fortunate that we've got the Center for Justice and Post-Exoneration Assistance established at the university. Purdue Northwest has been incredible supporter. They have helped fund this, as has the Simon family. So we are looking at 
policy issues, you know, policy reform, post-exoneration needs of exonerees, and also obviously claims of innocence. Mr. Donald is paying it forward. And there's no better eyes, no better lens to look at a wrongful conviction than an exoneree. We have a long list of things that we are attempting to do. As you know, on average, it takes about nine years to get somebody exonerated. I'm not a lawyer, so I am hoping to raise funds to get more money so we can hire an attorney or have attorneys work pro bono on the cases that Mr. Donald and the students are now reviewing. So some really great things have happened as a result of actually of our friendship, of our meeting, you know, some incredible things have happened. So if anybody is interested in learning more about the work that the Center for Justice and Post-Exoneration Assistance is doing, they can email me at cjpa at pnw.edu. And if there's anybody who is interested in in providing donorships, sponsorships, we would be very excited to talk to you, you know, help you better understand what we're doing and why this is so important to all citizens of, of the state of Indiana and actually nationwide. We're going to have all of that linked in the bio in addition to a GoFundMe for Timmy. And now we're going to go to my favorite part of the show, which, of course, is called Closing Arguments. And Closing Arguments is, of course, the part of the show where I kick back in my chair, thank both of you, of course, profusely for being here, turn my microphone off, leave my headphones on, and just listen to anything else you want to say. Thank you so much for having me here today. I really do hope that the viewers learned something regarding wrongful convictions, particularly in terms of uh, mistaken witness identification, and that everybody understands that this could happen to you. And one of the things that I end everything with when I'm talking about wrongful convictions is if you were ever placed in police custody, interrogation, whatever, make sure you ask for an attorney. I think that is one of the biggest mistakes that people make, and it it makes sense when you're innocent, you have nothing to hide, so you think you don't need an attorney, and unfortunately, we know thousands of people have been wrongly convicted, and that's just the tip of the iceberg, right? So again, thank you for for having me, and I also want to say thank you to Mr. Donald for allowing me to enter into his world, so thank you, Timmy, for that. Thank you. Well, wrongful conviction should never happen. And it's my hope that during my journey since I've been out that I then came across a lot of young people that's entering the law profession, whether it be a, a attorney, a prosecutor, and some of them going into police work. And it's my hope that learning about my case and other people's cases about wrongful conviction, it's my hope that once they enter into their line of work, that the old guard eventually will leave and the, the new wave will come in and they'll probably shine a brighter light on this troubling issue. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Wardis, with research by Lila Robinson. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph, Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, as well as at Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can also follow me on both TikTok and Instagram at It's Jason Flom. 
Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number 1. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.